0: Welcome to this special live taping of The Sinica Podcast, coming to you today from the Asia Society, Switzerland, in Zurich. Hello, Zurich. It is just so wonderful to be back here. I was here last year and I had a terrific time. The Cynical Podcast is produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Sign up for SupChina Access, and you get our daily newsletter featuring stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese uh, researchers in the United States in this age of creeping McCarthyism, to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands or, by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it is a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation That is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and the very good people here at the Asia Society Switzerland have invited me back here to convene another conversation about a topic that's really at the center of so much of the discourse about China today. Technology. Tech is an important component of nearly every story that we read about from China today in a national security. We routinely read now about how advanced Chinese weapon systems or cyber warfare or cyber espionage capabilities or the dangers or challenges posed by China's strong position in 5G technology threaten American national security. In trade, we read about China's industrial policy and its plans to dominate advanced manufacturing through investment in key technologies. In the issue of human rights, we hear a great deal about Chinese techno-authoritarianism, about its use of artificial intelligence for surveillance purposes, for biometrics, and of course, for this infamous social credit system that we talked about Last year, here in Zurich. Uh, Last year, a Chinese scientist actually announced that he had edited the genome of twin girls using the CRISPR Cas9 technology and so on. Lots of technology related anxieties. So today, I want to have a conversation about these anxieties that we now feel here in Europe and in North America over China's ascent as a major technology power, I want to discuss how, in part because of China, some of the long-standing beliefs that many Westerners have held about the relationship between technology and politics have really been challenged fundamentally, and as I see it, have been completely upended. And I want to explore whether our own struggles with technology in the developed countries of the West, our own ideas about how technology and politics interact sometimes get projected onto China and shape our our understanding or even distort our understanding about what is actually happening there. So joining me for this discussion are two terrific guests. So first, I'd like to introduce immediately on my right, Christine Scher-Kupfer, who directs research on politics, society, and media at Merix in Berlin. Merix is the think tank of the Mercator Institute there. She is an expert on China's digital politics, on ideology, media policy, civil society, and human rights. So no more perfect person for this conversation. Earlier this year, I had the pleasure of sharing a stage with her in Hamburg, where we talked about an excellent study that she and a colleague presented at Merix. Uh, they they, they uh, wrote it for Merix, looking at how the EU might respond to some of the challenges that are posed by Chinese technology policy. So I'm delighted that she could be here in Zurich. Christine, welcome back to Seneca, or well, welcome to Seneca. I guess this is your first time actually on the show.
1: Thank you so much, Kaiser Kor for having me. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, next, I want to introduce, uh, on my far right, uh, Yevgeny Morozov, who is author of two books that profoundly altered the way I think about technology. One was called The Net Delusion, and the second was called To Save Everything, Click Here. Um, as well as numerous articles in prestigious publications from the New-, New Republic to the New Yorker, his ability to think very deeply about technology and also to locate it uh, not only within history, already something that really few people seem able to do, but also to see technological systems as economic systems. It, it really makes him a formidable and very important thinker today. Uh, Yevgeny has a strong comparative instincts as well, which is another reason why I was very eager to invite him to chat with us here tonight. Uh, so Yevgeny, welcome, warm welcome to Seneca.
2: Thank you so much, pleasure to be here. Uh, so,
0: Christine, let's, let's start the conversation off with a question to you. So, China, as we all probably know, began censoring its internet, uh, very aggressively and very early on, uh, in the year 2000, I think it was, uh, then U.S. President Bill Clinton famously said that, Trying to censor the internet in China is like trying to nail Jello, a brand of gelatin popular uh, with uh, less sophisticated Americans. <laughs> uh, trying to nail, like Bill Clinton, uh, trying to nail Jello to the wall. Uh, it was an expression of a belief that many people back then had, and that the internet somehow wanted to be free. That, like the Jello, it wanted to slip down the wall. Um, that it had. It was, you know, ultimately constructed from stuff that didn't lend itself to easy, uh, you know, constraints to, to, to nailing to the wall. Uh, in the nearly 20 years since, when it comes to Internet censorship in China, uh, we've all seen these, you know, we've seen these periods of, of relative loosening uh, and tightening. But there's a little doubt that really in the Xi Jinping era, since really 2013, uh, it's been very tight, tighter than ever. China has, in effect, nailed a whole shit ton of jello to the wall. Um, even while all sorts of circumvention technologies exist and are relatively easy to find and to use, very few Chinese actually end up using these things like VPNs. So Christine, what did we get wrong? Did we overestimate, uh, the, the difficulty of actually, uh, having an effective censorship regime or did we maybe underestimate the eagerness of Chinese people to look for information outside of the the so-called Great Firewall? Or or was it something else?
1: Well, first of all, I would still very much say it's an ongoing cat and mouse game. I mean, we probably underestimated the ability of the Chinese regime to use algorithms but also of course all kinds of filters and also manual labor to kind of shape to control to manipulate uh, the internet and and also of course then the ability of Chinese people to constantly try to circumvent this i mean that takes a lot of effort and courage to kind of evade the narrative readily presented to you although Again, I would say it's still an ongoing cat and mouse uh, game. I'm even in, you know, not the necessarily super political uh, forums, uh, you do still have quite a variety of opinions on all kinds of topics. For example, on lately we did a study or a preliminary study on AI and, and ethics and the questions related to that. And me and my colleagues were surprised what a wide spectrum of opinions you have in terms of concerns for privacy, also in terms of critique towards Chinese companies to readily sell data or exposing data and also indirectly towards uh, Beijing, a Chinese government not taking enough care of that. And I think the reason why we still have, although to a lesser degree, we still have a kind of spectrum of opinions is that within the Chinese leadership, there are obviously on some issues, different opinions, and they have to allow and strategically also do a a, a fair degree of diversity to also monitor what people Mm. say and try to then again influence that. So overall, I think, of course, we have maybe we had some overestimations and underestimations, uh, but still it's an ongoing cat and mouse game.
0: Yeah, and I think you're very correct to say that this willingness to allow quite a bit of discourse to flourish online Uh, is really one of the sources of the CCP's resilience, right? That they are able to, to, uh, react to public opinion in a fairly timely manner. I mean, it's, I think, very surprising to a lot of people, uh, who think that it is. And you're, you're, you're very correct that there's a wide range of discourse, but it's still, you're not going to find political organization. You're not going to find too direct or strident criticism of particular individual political leaders in China, right? And to that extent, they've been, they've been, pretty successful, we have to say. Uh, Around this time when internet censorship got started, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, I I was involved in a couple of of internet startups in China. Uh, There was another narrative uh, that was clearly ascendant at that time. uh, And it was one that was going to endure really for, you know, some time before being in recent years, completely reversed. And that was this idea that somehow Chinese internet companies were basically incapable of real innovation, right? Somehow uh, we, it was thought that they were only able to copy uh, mostly American business models. And I always thought it was strange, personally, that they always singled out China as this, un-innovative, this non-innovative country when there were plenty of other countries in the world that were had higher per capita GDP of maybe more robust and developed industrial base that also, you know, had fledgling internet industries. But you never heard about, you know, why isn't Turkey innovating or why isn't Argentina innovating or why isn't, you know, Mexico innovating when all of these countries anyway? I always thought that was, that was odd. Uh, but, but in, in any case, uh, Christine, you were in China for much of that time too. And I'm sure you remember that, that line of criticism, right? About you know, Chinese internet companies can't innovate. Um, and some years later, I would hear the opposite, you know, kind of positive claim being made about the USA that because America is free, it will always be innovative. Um So what they were saying essentially was that it wasn't just a necessary condition for innovation, but it was Freedom was a sufficient condition for innovation. And, you know, we heard, uh, ex-Vice President Joe Biden saying that in 2015. You heard even the, the former uh, CEO of HP Carly Fiorina saying the same thing and challenging people to show her anything that the Chinese had innovated. Apparently, nobody happened to have WeChat installed on their phone that they could show her. But um it was it was kind of funny. Anyway, I I, I remember I I once told the Washington Post uh, when asked about this that somehow Americans had convinced themselves that unless you knew the secret of what happened in Tiananmen Square in 1989, you weren't capable of of developing a successful smartphone app, that somehow freedom was a necessary condition for innovation. Um, now, what do you think of this tendency to disparage China's ability to innovate? Was this connected in some way to like the, the chest-thumping triumphalism of the post-Cold War? I mean, why did Americans have this idea? Where did that come from? Uh, I'd love both of your thoughts on that
1: yeah sure i'm happy uh, to kick it off it's It's a great question, and yeah, I do agree i may not i'm being i'm more comfortable probably talk, to talk about euro or very modestly about germany because this, this is the region I know best but yeah, and do we We had, there's, to some extent, still have this notion of, as you just said, well, an authoritarian regime suppressing its people. There, there cannot be any kind of inspiring innovation, and that's clearly a lesson we, we, we need, we needed to learn, and we still should have to learn. And it also, it really tells, for me, it's actually, it doesn't tell so much about the political system, but, but much more. And I think that's really important that China is so much more than the CCP. It's really about clever. Yeah. <laughs> Small people, and there are people even saying where we should be, maybe thank God that it's an authoritarian regime. If they would be, you know, a full-fledged democracy with, with even more creativity and stimulus and incentives, you know, to think out of the box. Wow. Where would they be, be, right? (laughs) But no, in general, I mean, it it shows that people, uh, it's, it's about people who can, if you have freedom in your mind and in your heart, and if you're you're creative, you can even, although I, I do agree that innovation, of course, nourished by, you know, diversity and the ability to 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 try out different things and to have a full-fledged spectrum of information. But what I really wanted to say, I mean, really, when you go to China and I would really encourage all of you to do that, uh, great entrepreneurs, a great entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, of course, they also do say we look still to United States. A lot of people who have shaped um, great Chinese, you know, innovative internet companies have spent some time in the U.S., or in Europe, and now Europeans and Americans go to China. So I I do think that it's something which comes out of, yeah, the creativity, the kind of also necessity, because you don't have so many offline-ready infrastructure in China, so many solutions like in Europe or in the U.S. So you kind of have that freedom and that space also to, you know, develop all different kinds of, of uh, services online. Yeah, and I found that very uh, impressive. Although, again, I do think, of course, uh, a liberal democracy and education system would, would even more inspire people, you know, to think out of the box is clearly not hampering innovation either.
0: So, Evgeny, um, that era, um, you know, the late 90s and pretty much the whole decade that followed, that was really the heyday of that kind of techno-utopianism. Uh, there was a narrative about technology as an emancipatory force. Uh, that really came into the ascendant during that time. And you were one of the people, Evgeny, who really recognized this early on, and, and you've made combating this tendency one of the more recognizable tenets of your worldview. Uh, what would you identify as the factors that led so many of us, especially in the West, to buy into this idea that the internet would would free people from authoritarian regimes, uh, I mean, was this part of the Cold War triumphalism? That same Cold War triumphalism was it? Was it you know the the the, the, the teleological faith that so many of us have uh, in in the West in the way that history works? Um, I mean. I can uh, imagine what some of the factors might have been, but what was it for you that solidified the ideas that eventually
2: made their way into the net delusion, Mm -hmm. that that book that you wrote? Sure. Well, you have to understand that uh, the mindset of a typical bureaucrat or apparatchik sitting in Washington rather than Moscow and Beijing is shaped by a couple of basic truths about the world. Um, Some of them relate to a once popular but mostly discredited idea of modernization theory, that ultimately societies advanced uh, onto a ladder of some kind, the more uh, knowledgeable, educated, exposed to the global world they become, uh, the more likely democracy, human rights, uh, and similar goods are to flourish. Uh, In that context, Uh, media and telecommunications, of course, have always played a very big role in that imagination. If you go and read some of the uh, essays and interviews by Marshall McLuhan, for example, from the 1960s and 1970s, you would see that he really thought that somehow the introduction of very basic telephone technology or satellite technology in Africa would fundamentally transform uh, how people there experience in the globe, and it will make them more like Americans or more like the English. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that, there is, of course, a separate but very similar account running at the back of the minds of the apparatchiks and bureaucrats, and that has to do with how crucial free circulation of knowledge and information is to innovation and to capitalism. And uh, if you put those two together, you end up with a very uh, naive, in my opinion, and utopian account of how free circulation of knowledge and information essentially leads to both modernization and economic growth Mm -hmm. uh, and capitalist development. Um, In 1990s, both of these ideas got a major boost uh, for ideological reasons because the Soviet Union fell apart. And the story about it falling apart was mostly told by those very apparatchiks, who, of course, wanted to present and overstate their own role in that downfall. So the stories that they preferred to tell were stories that focused on their own contribution. And their own contribution was smuggling in Xerox machines, fax machines, some is that helping the dissidents. And it all became a story about the agency of the dissidents and not about the disintegration of the social structure of Soviet Union or the inability to match military spending of the United States or the problems of the planned economy. All of those factors were downplayed. So against that ideological and historical background, it was almost natural that... That the intensification and acceleration of communications that the internet made possible would be celebrated as an emancipatory force. And many of the people did that until the Chinese case really presented a challenge to this narrative, because you saw modernization, you saw capitalist development, uh, but you saw none of the traditional freedoms associated with free circulation of knowledge, Um, And that, of course, is a conundrum, if you will, that uh, most of these bureaucrats and apparatchiks and policymakers do not know how to address because their basic mental schemas do not allow for that uh, alternative path of development.
0: And in fact, these two narratives, and and I think it's really interesting how you, you suggest that two of them are so intertwined. But both of these narratives, if we do treat them as separate, were completely inverted. So let's talk about how and why that happened uh, really just in such, in, in such a short time and, and in so recent years. So how did we get to the point where suddenly the Internet isn't an emancipatory force, but rather really the handmaiden of authoritarian repression. Suddenly we, we think that, that that's what it is now. We obsess now. I mean, I can, I think all of us in this room can identify some of the obvious factors. Uh, there was, of course, the failure of so many of the Arab Spring uprisings. There was, of course, uh, the Snowden revelations of, about PRISM, this NSA project. And then, of course, there was Cambridge Analytica and all the other ways in which technology was used to subvert not only the election in 2016 in the U.S., but many elections in Europe in the years running up to that. But there's got to be more than just that that they contributed to this grand disillusionment. So maybe just staying with you for a moment here, Evgeny, and then I'll ask Christine to weigh in. What, what do you see as some
2: of the other factors that, mm. that, that brought that about? Well, I think I can give a very poetic answer, uh, which is very unlike uh, my usual self. Um, you know, if you do accept these two stories that I've said, that I've mentioned, you know, one of modernization and one of capitalist development, uh, both of them essentially function as myth. I mean, they are quasi-religion for a lot of people who really believe in them and they show up to work and they really think that this is how the world works. Uh, When you are faced with evidence that this is not how the world works, but you cannot reject those myths because they're so crucial to your kind of uh, perception of the world, you have to come up with a third myth that will explain how this magic force got corrupted, (laughs) right? And, uh, of course, the uh, explanation that these people come up with is that there was nothing wrong with our theories. It's just that the communist Chinese state has become so powerful that it subverted the uh, magic power of the Internet and telecommunications, and they did it not because they are cleverer than us, but because they steal. Social oh, right. property they manipulate uh, you know public opinion, they engage in tricks, all of that happens, and you know this is the only myth that helps to reconcile all of the other contradictions in the theory, and I think it explains actually quite a bit about how you can possibly continue believing in emancipatory power of the internet and also believe that somehow uh, uh this laissez-faire kind of neoliberal model of development where startups essentially run the show, uh how it's key to economic development when China has shown the exact opposite, right. almost. That, you know, having the state, to some extent, even though not as fully as we hear in the conventional story, but state nonetheless was quite involved in setting the rules, in, to some extent, developing standards in... Uh, setting some broader legal and political direction for where the digital economy should be going. And it has produced the only competitor to Silicon Valley right? that we have. And this is also very hard to reconcile with everything that most of the people in the United States have come to believe, that About no Silicon central Valley. planning right. of the digital economy is possible. So uh, they, of course, have to somehow reinvent and invent a very different uh, account, from what has actually happened, where the private companies might have actually led the development and dragged the government along with them, right? But even that is very hard for them to acknowledge because they need to have this account of China being very powerful and being able to corrode the internet, so which then sets in force a very different ideological dynamic, so to say.
0: I think you missed your calling. You should have been a psychologist of nations. <laughs> I mean, that's a good, that's um, so, but Christine, Clearly, this narrative, this third narrative, was able to take some root in America because there's some truth to the core of it, this idea that Chinese companies do steal. I mean, there's there are uh, there's very clear evidence, for example, of uh, Huawei having stolen a, a lot of IP from Cisco in the very early 2000s, for example. But um, to what extent is that real? And to what extent do you think it, it has been exaggerated?
1: Well, to start on a very general uh, level, I mean, we do have the tendency we've everything basically to to seek simplify solutions right i mean that's the great strength of china again the chinese society because it's part of their philosophy to be able to not as you rightly said Joy oh, aginif uh, um not to seek to to reconcile with or to kind of unpack them but to 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 be able to let contradictions stand or like different tendencies stand as they are and i for example i do think of course we do lately have a lot of tendencies that authoritarian states can use the internet for example to for example to to control and to manipulate uh, and to in the sense of yeah again kind of put a hold on this Emancipatory or civil society Prayer of the internet but if we think About the latest protest movements Look to Hong Kong look to Lebanon Look to Latin America they again Use the internet to organize And ex- to exchange information I mean this this other Initial kind of idea of the Internet as a societal power And help to you know self Organize it's not completely gone I, I sometimes do think we, we tend mm, to Go yeah. to extremes a little bit uh, uh, Too much and uh, And to your question, yeah, of course, again, there is some truth to that, but that's not the whole story, right? But I do think it's, it would be also misleading to completely go to the opposite and say what we initially thought and these kind of evidence of stealing or manipulating. Uh, this is, this is all not true and should be seen in a larger light of a completely other narrative.
0: Right. Christine, I don't know if you saw, but the other day, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO and founder of Facebook, was at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and he gave a, a speech, uh, in which he jumped on, you know, on this bandwagon of fear of Chinese techno-authoritarianism, uh, finally abandoning all these obsequious efforts he's made over many years, Jogging very publicly through the smog of downtown Beijing, and learning Mandarin and giving these obsequious speeches, and and you know having Lu Wei, who was the head of the Chinese uh, you know cyberspace administration, coming to his office and ha- strategically placing works of Xi Jinping on his desk so they could be seen. all of the stuff. He's apparently given it up and has decided. Well, if I'm not getting into China, I'm going to attack China. And he was remarking that China is building its own internet focused on very different values and is now exporting their vision of the internet to other countries until recently, the internet in almost every country outside China has been defined by American platforms with strong free expression values. There is no guarantee these values will win out. What what did you make of this, this, this statement of his, uh, I mean, is, is this a cynical attempt to um, stave off uh, competition from the likes of TikTok, which is eating into to Facebook's video business. What is he doing here? What is this?
1: Yeah, I do think it's clearly uh, again also what we've talked about. It's part of. Of probably a kind of uh, disappointment or frustration of, yeah, not being able to, as in so many other parts of the world, being able to bring Facebook, the business to to China and see that actually other platforms are much more important for, for Chinese and are picked up. Uh, again, of course, not saying that Chinese in China or when they are brought not using Facebook, but clearly it has not such a, such a wow, stardom or standalone quality. In many other regions of the world, for example, in in Europe, yeah, and I do sense there is a a kind of a frustration not being able to harvest yeah, the this, this big but Chinese But isn't he kind market. of right?
0: But isn't he kind of right that it, aren't there two competing visions of the, the Chinese idea of internet sovereignty, where states should have uh, quite a bit of content control over what what, what is on their their national internet, uh, versus the American vision? Is isn't he sort of uh,
1: well? I, of course, if we simply talk about the governmental level, if we talk about governments or some ideas within the governments, yes, we do we do have a tendency, especially if we a look at technology, if we look at five G, five G to, to head towards a bifurcated, you know, internet. And as a European, that's a very uncomfortable situation. We might end up, or we already are, in a solution in a situation where we have to choose either it's the Chinese package or the U.S. check it uh, package. But again, I mean, come. Coming from the research I'm doing, really looking at Chinese society, Chinese diaspora abroad or in China, I think uh, I, I do see a lot more convergence here, as I said initially about notions on privacy. I mean, of course, Chinese people do care about data. Yes, they care about convenience, but this whole narrative, you know, China is also so successful with peace people, I just it's all about convenience. They don't care about their data. Then they don't care about privacy. That's not true. Increasingly, yeah, I want to
0: get into that question uh, in a little bit. That's a very, very good, good point to raise. Yevgeny, what do you think of what Zuckerberg was saying? And uh, what did you make of his
2: remarks? Well, I think we have to understand that it's not just China that's presenting uh, a challenge uh, to the business models of the US companies. And this is where juxtaposing the US and the Chinese model is not very helpful. Because if you look at how, for example, in Europe, we enact laws like GDPR or the right to be forgotten, they presume... Almost a very similar model of state sovereignty, uh, where it's the states that dictate to the companies what is it that needs to be done. Of course, those are democratically elected states. There is, you know, a, a very different legal mechanism and institution behind it. But nonetheless, I think we should not accept uh, the what we have seen. Uh, in the digital economy until now, which was basically the global expansion of American businesses, backed up by U.S. Department of Commerce, U.S. Department of State, Wall Street, Venture Capital, and Pentagon, uh, and presented as in the natural interest of humanity. Because this is precisely the core uh, of the modernization theory that Americans have been preaching for all these years. And I think we have to be very careful not to conflate the interest of humanity with the interest of American shareholders. Because very often that conflation is very unhealthy. That the Chinese are pushing back against it, and they're pushing it very aggressively, I think we can criticize it uh, with internal Chinese politics in mind. But it's very hard to criticize it when you put a democratic government that has you know, the guts to stand up to all these powerful players who are on the other side. And unfortunately, at this point, it's governments like Russia and China who have the guts. Right. It's frankly very refreshing to hear somebody talk
0: about uh, the sort of forceful export of American I- ideas about internet governance uh, as being not just carried by these scrappy entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley. Uh, this mythology of of the rugged individual. Uh, it's it's ironic to me that suddenly and and, and that you you mention all these other forces. You know that the Pentagon is involved, the Department of Commerce is involved, and this is very true. It's also true about the origins of Silicon Valley itself. And uh, one of the things that seems strikes me as profoundly ironic is how these self-same uh, proponents of this rugged individualist mythology uh, are looking now at China's Made in China 2025 or its 2017 AI plan, uh, these pieces of industrial policy and they're quaking in their boots. They th- wasn't that supposed to not work? Isn't that what American mythology said, that that sort of stuff can't work? Wasn't it these these uh, bootstrapped guys in their fabled garages who started Silicon Valley? Or mm-hmm. are we finally being more honest about the real
2: origins of American technology? Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is, again, where being um, in the study of myth uh, helps because what we have just described is the myth concocted for public consumption, uh, where you know we do not even acknowledge that America does have an industrial policy, and even though they don't call it "Made in America," they call it "Advanced Manufacturing" uh, something. I mean, there is clearly a very similarly sounding industrial strategy that was developed by the Obama administration, and it ties into a much broader history of efforts. To essentially shape the technological landscape in the United States to serve primarily, at least during the Cold War, the geopolitical interests of the United States. This is how Silicon Valley essentially comes into existence. It comes into existence as a client of the Pentagon, as a kind of key supplier of the Pentagon, and Pentagon being its main client. Right? And in the nineteen nineties, this triumphal attitude. Uh, after the Cold War, um, it kind of lets that logic and ideology loosen up a little bit. So you see more venture capital occupying the spaces, and there is very there is less strategic investment happening. And on the, the fact that CIA. Open its own venture capital fund, for yeah, example. Yeah. yeah, it's, 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 it's an indication of just how the mentality has changed. And I think by 2018, 2000, maybe 17, if not earlier, there is a realization that that strategy is not working and that this turn towards liberalization in 1990s in America has not worked. And that prompts the likes of Steve Bannon to essentially push and nudge the U.S. government to reorient itself completely towards the embrace of the strategy that America has always held on to during the Cold War, which is very active control of its technological back end and backbone.
0: Uh, Christine, it's interesting that Yevgeny cites the end of this era at around 2008-2009 and the beginning of that with triumphalism after the collapse of Soviet communism. That fits my schema of it as well. So to what extent are, is this inversion of the narrative sort of a function of American declinism? We're getting into psychology again. Uh, I mean, it's not no coincidence that, uh, the, the financial crisis and the great recession that followed, uh, is timed pretty closely to this change in narrative that we're talking about. Do you see these two things as linked?
1: Yeah, I mean, clearly there there is a clear link, but also, again, bringing in Europe here. I mean, lately, uh, I mean, we had some, we had a lot of reluctance to talk about industrial policy, you know, the state driving uh, technology to use it for its own national or even uh, geostrategic interest. And also just recently, and also because on the one hand, having lost, in a sense, a reliable U.S. ally because of the current uh, U.S. administration, but on the other hand, leaning totally towards China also not being an option for Europe, clearly, because of, uh, at least from a domestic perspective, also a very intransparent system, which is now even, I would say, turning totalitarian in that sense. But also we had to strategically kind of adjust our own thinking about technology and coming up with a more strategic, also state-led approach, not only free markets, everybody's welcome uh, to invest, but also taking, of course, some precautions. Uh, So in the sense, it was, um, for for Europe, it's, yes, on the one hand side, this kind of uh, also alliance which has gotten a lot more difficult yeah. with the US but on the other hand also clearly it's not an option to 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 partner up uh, with China so yeah this whole kind of change of narrative change of the whole so to say international landscape in a sense has been a particular challenge uh, in Europe and it's it's still ongoing of course
0: yeah I mean I think we should talk a little bit more about um, the challenges that it poses for Europe and I want to save that sort for, for sort of the end because that's you know uh, uh, an important question. But just now you flicked at something that I thought was really interesting, talking about uh, these stereotypes that often get invoked about how, for example, Chinese people might have a very different idea about privacy. Um, I mean, it, it makes me wonder, um, do either of you see, and I'll start with you, Christine, I'll stay with you first, uh, see all of this as sort of wrapped up in, in frankly, Orientalist assumptions about Not just Chinese, but East Asians more broadly. I mean, you're probably familiar with the way that people stereotype East Asian people so often as soulless automatons, as these sort of robots who are good at rote memorization, but not at creative expression, um, who are, you know, aren't schooled in critical thinking for some reason and all that. I mean, variations on that theme include this idea that you know, we're Chinese people aren't bothered by privacy issues where Europeans clearly are. You know, GDPR, the right to be forgotten. Uh, Americans less so, um, or or maybe that that some feature of Chinese political culture allows it to slip more comfortably or or less, you know, with with with, with less commotion into submission to techno-authoritarian politics. Uh, what do you guys think think about that?
1: I would clearly say that that's that's a major force or a major narrative. I mean, I can have rightly uh, rightly have mentioned that myth kind of myth creation help us to 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 kind of explain a word which gets more and more complex and also seek to clarify our our own identity and right. I, yeah I do think that's that's uh, that's a notion that has been ascribed wrongly to uh, Asians or to Chinese people uh, in general I mean also again with the whole notion of human rights if you kind of say well yeah this is a Western idea you know freedom of expression and of course of course if you go a long way you could also eventually link up privacy and this whole notion to it but so Chinese are not humans right they're not <laughs> part of of this hum, human rights uh, kind of thinking so you know I do think this is really I, I think a, a message which I've keep repeating, that's also the way we talk about China. You know, it's a convenient way to say China, but what do you mean? What do we mean? Is it the government level? Is it the CCP? What forces within the CCP? And uh, so what is Chinese society, the Chinese? I think it's really important to look closer and to acknowledge even it's uncomfortable and it might be complex. And of course, as a scholar, I'm used to say it's complicated, but I do understand it's it's much more convenient to have, you know, categories to to fit the world and its life is complex enough, but really to acknowledge there's a lot of complexity and diversity in China. And yes, you do have people who say, well, I don't care, it's about convenience, I, I might, well, I wanted to order a taxi, I want to make a doctor's appointment, I don't care if my data is out there. But you have these people in Europe too, right? Um, and I do think when we talk about China and also the future of China and how things will work out, we should also not really and make that mistake to say, now the whole story is China's on the rise, it will overtake everything. I do think we have to prefer, prepare for disruptions, and I think disruptions are also very likely to come from within Chinese society, questioning this paternalistic, you know, um, a journey venture of the party state saying we know what is best and we kind of deploy technology to exactly. wherever we want. So I do think we, we should be pre- prepared to that that kind of narrative and this China rise. It's not a it's not a, a sad story.
0: Evgeny, um, one of the things that I, I, I know when we have talked about the role of industrial policy and of top-down R&D seating in China and we focused so much on the role of the state... Aren't we forgetting something in the story of, 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 of China's growing tech prowess? I mean, do, are we at risk of, of maybe going too far in that direction and forgetting about the contributions of the
2: Chinese private sector?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: No, I think that's the case. Uh, in that, you know, if you analyze the Chinese digital sector, you'll probably find, uh, people and attitudes that are much more, liberal or pro western or, you know, however oh, like, yeah, you like to attach to experience. it and much more integrated into the what we can call, you know, global elite networks That's than right. in any other sector of the Chinese economy. So clearly they are not the kind of people that, you know, in the Soviet Union would be working for KGB. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> there would be the no. people being hunted by them. Right. right? So in that sense, drawing this direct link uh, between industrial policy and uh, what uh, the Chinese digital industry is doing, I think is, is incorrect. But we should not be blind to the fact that um, there is a very active effort to shape Uh, how money is distributed when it comes to artificial intelligence, how people are attracted, uh, which companies are kept out, how much data is allowed to be stored locally, how much of it can be stored abroad. All of those are very important decisions. They might not necessarily account for the success that these companies are having in local and foreign markets, but they are probably accountable for the durability uh, of, of those business models, and the fact that these companies have not been overtaken by the Japanese or Russian or American competitors, or by the soft, even SoftBank clearly has had a major stake in Alibaba. Right. Right? But they are not exposed to it to the same extent that you know any other American company is exposed to it. But I would like to say one thing about attitudes to privacy, also. Sure. And this is where I think you know it's helpful. I think. Uh, to reframe that question a little bit, and instead of asking about privacy, ask about just how attitudes of people in China to technology. Uh, And the the idea that technology means progress uh, differ from the experiences of people in Europe uh, or in the United States. And this is where, you know, the kind of broader historical experience of the last 40, 50 years of immense growth in uh, income, of, you know, shrinking inequality, of the fact that so many people have managed to advance. Across you know the social ladder, they clearly shape how people think about technology and progress. You right. know, and in Europe and the United States, it has been a time of decline. It has been declined off. You know, in the in, in the case of uh, former Eastern Bloc of excessive surveillance, which did not result in any meaningful uh, economic growth or improvement of standards of living and well-being. So, if you were to do that comparison, then I think it's clearly your attitude towards technology and progress. Uh, that you have to be measuring. And this is where I think it clearly helps uh, that in China that and, and, and there's just been such an immense positive experience. With yeah, all of it's, those it's happened in lockstep. I mean, as my life gets better
0: materially,
2: even emotionally, spiritually, whatever. Sure, but uh, it's just, my, my, my phone there is, there phone is, is a better. footnote <laughs> to it. You know, I still remember the last years of the Soviet Union as I was growing up. You know, And even then, despite the overall decline and people being very gloomy and depressive, uh, it was not technology, that, or it was not the market clearly, but certainly not technology that was celebrated as this great force that helped to spread the richness around and wealth around everybody. It was the Communist Party, right? And there was uh, a very coherent message that it was the victory of communism. And I'm sure that you get some of that discourse in China also, but because it's an economy that's so much more integrated with global capitalism and where this private wealth or this wealth has been to some extent achieved by the private sector, you need to have an actor whom to credit. Was this massive improvement in standards and life? And this is where I think technology, as a kind of almost discursive force, comes into play and it gets to carry this fantastic uh, set of, you know, uh, contributions uh, to the improvement of. Uh, this, this idea
0: is put forth really clearly in a book that I really liked called uh, Shanghai Future, written by a woman named Anna Greenspan, uh, who I had on the show many years ago. But this idea that Chinese have a different attitude toward futurity there is an unembarrassed embrace of this idea of technology driven bright futures whereas in the United States and in the UK and in other parts of Western Europe uh, we almost were' embarrassed of it you know Futurama is sort of a, 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 a kind of a disparaging term you know it's mocking we think about progress, even we put little, you know, scare quotes or quotes around the word progress. Uh, that's that's a, a very, uh, I think, a very keen insight. And um, it, it, we don't have to slip into Orientalism to say that East Asians or Chinese especially have a different uh, sort of a posture toward technology as it affects uh, the future. So, yeah, um, a very, very well put. Evgeny, I'm just staying with you very quickly You've been very critical about this tendency toward internet centrism I mean, this is one of, again, the key pillars of of, uh, much of your thinking You've talked about this a bit with respect to the the either emancipatory or progressive kind of dyad that we think of Um, But nowadays, the concern seems to be over the balkanization of the internet People are using this word splinternet, right? Um, whether along national lines as between China and the United States or even within a one polity within the United States where we see that there is sort of a, a conservative and and, and a liberal internet in, in,
2: in, the U.S. Should this concern us? Well, uh, it clearly concerns a lot of people in America. Uh, whether it should concern the rest of us, I'm not so sure. Uh, because <laughs> I never truly believed in the ever, Existing uh, global internet. it just, we never had it. Right. Uh, you know, it has always been dominated by the hegemon, and that hegemon was the United States. And uh, you might have said that it was a very benevolent one for the first 30 years of the internet's existence, and we can argue about that. But uh, ultimately, the fact that countries with different uh, legal norms, expectations, and aspirations are trying to carve out uh, separate zones uh, for themselves I don't find it necessarily such a negative thing because we all have different laws. And I think that this... Diversity of legal norms and this diversity of approaches to how we should live. Uh, in itself, it's not problematic. You can, of course, go case by case and say, okay, it is clearly something that does not con- conform to the cosmopolitan standard that we would all like to encourage in the world, given the agendas of global justice. And this is a valid conversation to have, but neither does the current climate. I mean, the current, the, the kind of the freedoms that we got now. Uh, as the result of this American-led internet, uh, you know they are just accidental byproducts. Of the business models of these firms if those business models change and they move from extracting data and selling advertising they move to just completely supplying the pentagon with every single weapon that they need to every single ai system that they need these business models will also fall apart so for me it's a very precarious foundation on which to build a culture of global freedom of expression and cosmopolitanism now the fact that the departure from current system would allow authoritarian states to move in and build their own enclaves. It's problematic, but it would also be the only condition on which truly democratic states would be able to build also democratic enclaves of their own. So, unfortunately, I don't see an easy exit from the system, but I just know that the current one is so fragile and its uh, consequences and effects. As we have seen in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, in the wake of Snowden revelations, in the wake of many revelations by WikiLeaks, they're so dramatic and they're so also occasionally negative for the global public sphere that I think we should open that conversation and instead of talking about the splinter net, talk about many possible ways and charts and pathways Mm. in which those systems can develop with respect for human rights, freedom of expression and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. So, Christine, you know,
0: we've talked about, uh, you know, our own disillusionment. Uh, we've talked about American declinism, the national psychology of the U.S. or even of Western Europe, of our posture toward futurity, of maybe latent Orientalism, of internet centrism. But actually, couldn't it also be, or isn't it also about real changes that are happening in China and real ways in which the Chinese are using the internet in ways that, are, that, that citizens of liberal polities find very deeply troubling. They're deploying surveillance technologies in ways that are frankly very troubling. I mean, look at what's happening in Xinjiang, which has been widely reported on. I mean, if words like Orwellian or totalitarian have any place in our discourse on technology in China, that they, they would be in Xinjiang Autonomous Region, right, Uh, where we're seeing, you know, this atrocity unfolding. So, Christine, could you talk about some of the ways uh, that technology is developing that really do trouble you? Uh, And maybe not just in China, but also maybe in in the United States, the ways that we should be really concerned.
1: Well, yes, you mentioned the most concerning one, the most prominent one, Xinjiang and also Tibet, where this uh, has kind of started. I mean, I think, again, coming back to the very beginning of our conversation, this is really something I think a lot of people have underestimated the ability Uh, of authoritarian or totalitarian regimes even to kind of conceptualize the internet as a as a tool of of full-fledged governments right in in terms of linking it with the security apparatus uh kind of also incentivizing local governments to you know get more budget or more credit when they successfully would install a a number of cameras or devices on on a private person's uh, mobile phone so yeah really this Full fledged surveillance in the name of security and harmony, right? This is the narrative that um, the Chinese uh, kind of sell it to um, the the society, saying, We're doing this because we have to ensure security. It's necessary so you will feel more safe. There will be less terrorism coming from Xinjiang, for example. And of course, uh, this has been an ongoing discussion, a debate also within Europe this freedom against security. You know, we also had a lot. If we still have a lot of discussions, to what sure, extent you sure. should allow the state to 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 uh, to listen in, to kind of for preventive policing, in a sense, right? We do have that, also, particularly upcoming and in, in various states in in Europe. And I mean, it's always it's always this this tricky uh, balance we've talked yeah, yeah. about, right? On the one hand, of course, we wanted to have a more secure society, and we, of course, technology has a role to play, but. Mm-hmm. Again, then it's about human rights and freedom of protection of personal information, and it's it's a very delicate discussion. I mean, it's part of this whole, I would say, reshaping of the internet on a global level. Also, this this ongoing, it's an all topic, right? Freedom uh, and security, yeah, in a sense. Yeah.
0: And uh, interestingly, I think Evgeny, we were we were talking about uh, how this narrative about the internet as emancipatory. Or as oppressive, it changed. The wording is different in in China, but they've also sort of accepted that this narrative has changed, too. Beijing sees it as going from uh, the Internet as this real potential for social destabilization to now a means for harmonization, a, a means. And they, they do put it to use that way. The surveillance seems onerous and everything like that, but on the, the same – they're doing a lot of sentiment analysis – they're using this to feedback. They're using this to be in some ways more responsive to
2: uh, mm-hmm. the, the needs of the public. And so they, they see it that way as well, don't, yes. don't they? Well, look, I mean, uh, kind of the first premise of my critique of internet centrism was that talking about the internet as having certain specific effects is pointless, useless, and should not be done. Uh, because ultimately, people in need and forces in need of using it for whatever purpose they find most immediately useful will do everything in their power to do it. So if at this point, the most immediate task facing a certain political regime is survival, they will use all the technologies at their disposal, not just the internet, but also the post office, the radio, the television, the newspaper, the library in order to survive. To me, it seems like a very basic insight. The question then becomes how much... Ability and power they have over leveraging these infrastructures for their own ends and how much counterpower forces on that end have. And I think our problem and the reason why so many people concerned with democracy and human rights and the vast have been so misled is because we assume that this magical force of the Internet would do our work for us that we would not need to be building and funding these infrastructures that will be encrypted and secure. We would not need to ensure that there will be access to those infrastructures by the dissidents and the human rights activists. But somehow this magic force will spring up and like a force of nature, it will keep transforming these regimes until all of our work is done. And it's, of course, an overstatement, but I think there is a basic truth to that expectation and it's just wrong. I mean, I I see that the (laughs) United States does this all the time uh, I mean, ascribes that
0: volition to it. Uh, do you think that, Ch- I don't know how much you know about what, how, uh, if you
2: read any of the papers that China puts out about internet governance. Sure. I, I don't feel like it's quite as guilty of that. No, no, no. I'm, I'm sure it's not guilty of that because it, it ultimately rejects the basic kind of ideological point right. of this global internet, which is that, you know, you have to accept it as a package. And if you don't accept it as a package, you'll find yourself in the dark ages. Which was the rhetoric they of the, where they can the, which right. was the rhetoric of Washington in the 1990s. You know, I still remember when I was researching for my first book, uh, I had to read through all of the speeches given by Clinton and others. And the argument was essentially that that if you don't accept the internet the way all of us in Washington and Silicon Valley have accepted it, you risk becoming North Korea. That was the argument, right? right. And it's an argument that I just find very ridiculous because clearly it can be disaggregated as a protocol, as a tool, as a set of infrastructures. And those infrastructures can be redeployed to very different political and economic projects, okay. which the Chinese have done. Okay, yeah,
0: I, I was just making sure I understood that. Earlier on in this conversation, Christine, you talked a little bit about the conversation shaping up in China right now about AI and ethics. Now, I mean, for the longest time, it was always my sense that that conversation really wasn't happening in China, at least not in the, in, in Bef- the, since the last year, maybe it's begun happening. But prior to that, my sense was that while, while in the United States we had some of our leading technologists like Elon Musk or Bill Gates or some of our our leading natural scientists like the late Stephen Hawking talking about the dangers of AI, uh, talking about unleashing the demon, um, armies of killer robots and this sort of thing, uh, where, you know, maybe that may an exaggeration, but uh, whereas in China – Very little. And I thought that this was sort of part of that same posture toward futurity, that same sort of set of attitudes toward technology. But you were starting to see what have been the the moments that have seemed to have changed that and sparked that more public conversation in China.
1: Well, I think in general, it's also the experience of many, uh, especially urban Chinese belonging to the middle class, that, of course, we do still have an enormous positive growth. And I think you've been rightly attributing that also to positive experience of technology. But lately, that have been shaken, right? I I sense when I go to China a lot more uh, fragility, a lot more insecurity. Also, a lot of people who can would like to, you know, Take their family to the United States, to Canada, get green cards, also get their money, then eventually also out of, out of the country. And I think that also led to a lot of uh, questioning in terms of really, will this continue? Can we trust that? I mean, look at the Chinese cadres themselves, right? Whenever they can, we know some stories that their children, their family, their, their money is out of the country. And so this is not a, a huge kind of commitment to an inevitable continuing Chinese successory, But I think that kind of led to a lot of reflection and questioning. Very, I mean, in a sense, human questions of what is the purpose of life? What do what kind of legacy do we want to leave our children? And yes, there have been a huge positive experience in terms of future and progress. But at what cost? I mean, a lot of Chinese, they also reflect on that. Environmental damage, huge inequality. Uh, And I I think in that sense, that kind of has inspired this debate. And interestingly, it was we found when we're looking at at, at social media debates, there was this debate between Elon Musk and Jack Ma this summer. And the Chinese perceive, a lot of Chinese bloggers perceive that as so... uh, Jack Ma as so, in a sense, ridiculous, kind of totally being, everything is super positive, everything is great, technology will solve all our issues, you know, we will ride on the wings of technology and AI and will make us, help us to make a better world, uh, or at least a better China. And Elon Musk being, as you rightly said, Kaiser, very skeptical and reflective. And I mean, th- that has inspired a great debate, really, of saying, oh, we should not, you should be, we should be more reflective and, you know, life is complex and a lot more fragile, and so we should make sure that ethics and should play a role. And uh, just today, I read I read a story that in 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 the province of Zhejiang, they tried devices in in schools uh, to put on children's head, which which kind of collect data about brain activity and right.
0: when they're sleepy, when they're paying yeah, attention, yeah, exactly. When they're actually and the
1: school would collect this and evaluate that, and then the parents protested against that. So why are you doing <laughs> This, what is happening to the data of our children? And for me, that was again a very telling moment. Also, saying there is a lot of reflection going on now in China and in in Chinese society on these kind of issues.
0: Well, good. I think that's a good sign. Uh, but in, in in China, there's a, another set of attitudes that have been developing about AI. Uh, there's another story going around about Jack Ma's big rival Liu Changdong, who is the founder of JD. And there's a story about him and how he had this epiphany when he was learning about uh, the capabilities of deep learning about AI, uh, where he suddenly realized that the dream of a communist planned economy uh, would suddenly be possible because AI algorithms and all of that data uh, could actually be better than the market at allocating goods, at, at, at allocating resources at uh deciding on uh, price mechanisms and things like that. Evgeny, you brought this idea uh up in a pe- recent paper that you wrote uh for the New Left Review which was fascinating. A really good sort of literature review of a lot of they, they sounded in your telling kind of silly <laughs> a lot of books about uh about this 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 um idea of planning supplanting uh, other mechanisms of price determination. Um so you know can we realize sort of a, a, a more perfect socialist state and, and run, do an end run around the market mm-hmm. using artificial intelligence?
2: Well, I'm personally convinced that it's possible and doable, and uh, eventually if the progressive forces wake up, they will start experimenting with big data in that direction. That would not necessarily involve... Uh, more role for planning. It would rather involve more opportunities for citizens to engage in non-market forms of social coordination mm. so that new knowledge can be produced. You know, one of the key ideological arguments of you know capitalism is that knowledge and innovation can only flourish when you have a price mechanism as your determining system inside your economy, that as soon as you stop allocating prices and as soon as prices do not determine how goods are allocated and produced, knowledge disappears through the cracks and you end up with the Soviet planning system and everything slows down because nobody innovates anymore. And I think that the possibilities of big data and the possibilities of collecting so much information in general, but also allowing us to communicate and coordinate directly, bypassing the price mechanism, you know, why do you need a price mechanism to incorporate all this data points if you can exchange data points directly, right? So there are new ways that I think are being opened up. And there are a lot of people, including in China and including people who kind of related to all the debates about planning who are thinking about these issues. The problems there are not really at the technological or intellectual level. The problems there are really relate to how you can do that under the conditions of a global economy that is entirely capitalist. Right. And then how you would be able to make sure that this experiences of Some kind of non capitalist forms of social coordination enabled by big data are not just prototypes run in some province for the, you know, career of the governor or the party leader, but actually become meaningful experiences that fundamentally transform how society is organized and this is the big challenge which so far few people well none of us have been able to resolve theoretically and practically. We have a lot of data in today's um, capitalist
0: markets as well but I mean is it really working are the price signals Mm -hmm. actually working I mean as you point out you know we've got these deep-pocketed te- platforms and, mm-hmm. and these massive sovereign wealth funds and these venture capital groups paying all this money in, subsidizing um, goods and services, and distorting completely yes. our prices. I mean, it's really gunked up the mechanism, and sure, I, I don't
2: know that sure. we're doing any better this way. Right? So we have two problems in the current system. Eight, the first one is, of course, that nobody knows what it costs to allow you to do a Google search. Like We have no idea what it costs. We think it's free, but nobody has a clue uh, how much uh, it should actually be uh, charged. Uh, But there is a second problem, and it's the fact that um, economic activity in a capitalist economy by itself very often leads economic players to manipulate the creation of knowledge and to insert and inject ignorance into the public sphere. You know, look at big energy and oil companies generating all sorts of strategically produced ignorance about climate change. You know, look at the credit rating agencies before the uh, financial crisis misleading us about the actual uh, risk profiles of financial derivatives. I mean, if you go and then look at, you know, many pharmaceutical companies and many others, I mean, if you go down the list, you will see that, you know, the production, of ignorance is one of the consequences of operating in a truly capitalist economy. It's not just the production of knowledge, right? And if we really want to start making those comparisons, then we really need to look at the both sides of the balance sheet. And so far, we've only been looking at one, unfortunately. That
0: is a fascinating topic. And I mean, I'm really curious to plunge into the literature about that, because I think this is something with potentially world transformative uh, properties. It's it's, it's astonishing, and when you really start to think about it, you get vertigo. <laughs> mm-hmm. I want to uh, finally end with, with questions about what's happening right now in Europe. Uh, your, your your colleague Marika Olberg and you co-wrote uh, a paper that w- took a clear-eyed look at some of the technology challenges that China's rise is posing for Europe, and you proposed uh, a set of of, of of potential solutions for this. In the time since, we've seen a lot happen already. Uh, including, for example, the United States uh, adding quite a number of, you know, eight major Chinese uh, AI companies, uh, including some of its big national champions like iFly Tech, some of the biggest camera companies like um, uh, Dahua and like uh, Hikvision, uh, some of the big uh, I- the computer vision companies like E2 to this entity list, uh, I don't know what, what you think about that approach, how that, that jives with, uh, the recommendations in your America's approach. But the, the other big topic is, is of course, it's the big bellwether for all Chinese technology companies that are trying to, to make it globally today. And that, of course, is Huawei. And Germany has recently made some announcements that I can't quite understand about what they're ultimately doing. Help us to understand what is Germany's now posture toward Huawei? And, and, and how do these other, you know, US schema fit into your, your, your recommendations?
1: Right. Yeah. Kind of, I mean, you pointing to, I think this is the major challenge for, for Germany or for the European countries to find a way to tackle these challenges, which are, different from the United States, because just simply to, to block uh, Chinese companies like Huawei or to, to put them on, on the blacklist. I mean, we, we simply don't have the policy mechanisms, but that's also not something which a lot of European policymakers would perceive not really as European, right? To block out. We're still, for good or bad reasons, are kind of, confident or even would say this is part of the European open markets, right? A place for investment. I mean, that's also a major, a major uh, part of our economic growth, of course, also. I'm going to go out
0: on a limb and say that's good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I would say so, too. And we should definitely uh, keep it. Of course, also taking, putting in place all kinds of investment screenings. But what you were saying ab- about Germany is exactly linked to this whole issue of trying to, again, strive a balance of not being naively not not letting our openness being misused so introducing kind of screening mechanisms uh, but and I think the German government is kind of taken various u-turns on that and the latest twist also basically initially they said okay we 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 are uh, we don't exclude anybody we just enforce our security reviews and mechanisms and every company including uh, Huawei who's willing to adapt to that is kind of welcome to pitch and to build a 5g infrastructure but then, Basically, it's an ongoing, as I read it, uh, kind of debate, different assessment between the chancellery and the the Ministry of Economy and Energy on the one hand and the Ministry of Interior Affairs and some of the security, more security-related agencies in Germany. On the other hand, lately, now the government has said said again, oh, well, we should kind of review this again. Maybe security standards is not enough. And now we, we will have a hearing again in the German parliament on the whole issue of 5G in brackets Huawei so it's for me, it's telling that...
0: Because German parliamentarians know the technical issues so well, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. No, that's why they invite, hopefully, well-informed experts to, uh, to to do that. And I know that one of our colleagues, Mikko Hotari, the vice director of Merx is going to be part of the hearing, And he's also real. He really has a, a, a grip on these issues. Uh, so as many others, experts, of course, do have all over the world. But for me, it really shows this struggle of uh, within Europe of saying, basically, you no it's not about shutting out it's it's really more about us becoming better not being naive but i mean taking it one step further and i think that's crucial to now getting more strategic in terms of investing in technology you know industrial policy on the one end, but also in terms of education in and in, in research, because we haven't done that for a long time. We too readily use, we were fascinated by the success for American business models and companies, and we kind of have forgotten to, you know, to come up with own European solutions. I mean, we have Nokia and Ericsson, for example, in, in the 5, 5G realm, and I, I personally would very much welcome that that would be a large chunk of the European infrastructure on that.
0: Well, I think the irony is, of course, that Trump is his own worst enemy when it comes to bringing the allies on board with his anti-Huawei agenda. I cannot thank you both enough. This has just been such a splendid conversation. You have such a uh, wonderful, wonderful time, and Christine Uh Before we say goodbye to them, let's go on to our recommendations section of the show. Uh, so l- let's 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 hear from both of you. Uh, Christine, why don't you go first? What has caught your attention recently?
1: I really would recommend a podcast, which I have come recently across because I, I think it really helps to understand contemporary China, also politics in a wider sense. It's called Three Kingdoms, done by a Chinese American, which picks up a, a historical novel in China, Three Kingdoms, which is about strategizing for and against about, you know, rival states. It's a historical novel, but it tells a lot about politics and ways of of, of shaping, you know, debates and discussions. And, and I really enjoy it. So go on Spotify on other podcast platforms I, I and search for Three so Kingdoms. I'm so
0: delighted to hear you recommend that because it's one of my favorite things in the world. Uh, the, the, the podcaster, he actually lives just down the road from me in North Carolina. Uh, I have actually been on his podcast. Uh, I've, I've read two of, of the, the chapters, uh, as the podcast. Uh, had a really good time doing it, and he has been actually been a guest on my podcast as well. So he's he's fantastic. His name is John Drew. He'll he's a big cynical listener, so he will hear this, and I'm sure he's going to blush because he's a really just a wonderful guy. Uh, that's that's a wonderful recommendation, Christine. That's that's terrific. Evgeny,
2: what do you have for us? You know, after this, I can only recommend your podcast. <laughs> no, uh, no, no, <laughs> um, no. Now I wanted to recommend an essay that uh, appears in the last issue of New Left Review on automation. it's called Automation and the Future of Work by a guy called Aaron Benanoff. Mm. And I think it's actually the best text I've read on automation, but also on ways in which much of the rhetoric around it has been overblown, and the ways in which uh, various uh, similar expectations and discourses around everything being automated, that they popped up in history, you know? So there is almost like a cycle of automation hype, and it seems to arrive every 25 or 30 years. So I should cancel my donations to Andrew Yang? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No more Yang. You should send it to him, yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I think it it does sort of get overhyped a lot. Uh, I mean, Uh, I do not think that five years from now all the radiologists are going to be out of work because, you know. uh, Why? If
2: he's elected president, it's possible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's wonderful. I want to recommend the audiobook version of, I mean, since we're both going with um, a- ancient China here, uh, the audiobook version of a book by uh, Sir Louis Cha, who's more better known in China as Jin Yong. Uh, he wrote one of my favorite things when I was a kid called *Shiladiao <laughs> It's this marvelous story uh, set 13th century in in China and in Mongolia, uh, sort of an adventure story. One of the most well loved uh, Chinese novels in the world, but it is now in an excellent English translation by a woman named Anna Horn- Hornwood, and. The first volume of it has been published and has is recorded as an audio book, which I listened to on the airplane on the way from uh, from the States when I wasn't reading Evgeny's very long New Left r- review <laughs> article. It's uh, terrific fun. I uh, highly recommend it. Uh, th- it's called uh, The Legends of the Condor Heroes, Volume 1, A Hero Born. Um, and so... A lot more fun than thinking about the California wildfires, the impeachment saga, climate change, and all the other stuff I have to think about. Uh, I want to thank you once, once again, Christine and Evgeny, for, for coming. And thank you so much for, to Nico and to the good people here, uh, to, to Serena and Desiree at the Asian Society of Switzerland for arranging for us to come out here. I hope you've all had as much fun as I have. Let's hear it for our wonderful guests. Thank you. Sinica Podcast, powered by SubChina and a proud part of the Sinica Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldhorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at sinica at subchina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at subchina news and make sure to check out all the other podcasts in our network. The Taishin Sinica Business Brief, the Pandaily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women, new voices and tough talk. The Middle Earth Podcast on the cultural industry in China and of course our brand new family member Strangers in China Thanks for listening We'll see you next week Take care hey, hey, hey.